0: Hello, everybody welcome to this episode of you are good a feelings podcast about movies i and one of your co-hosts alex steed will be joined by my fabulous co-host sarah marshall momentarily we're covering the movie nine to five and i uh, even though i just introduced myself as a co-host am not going to be your co-host today today today's episode is presented by sarah marshall our wonderful producer and music director, Carolyn Kendrick, and our great friend, Issa Burke. More on all that and 9 to 5 in uh, just a couple of minutes. First, I just want to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash good. You get bonus episodes over there. We just released our center stage podcast bonus episode we have a bonus episode coming out sometime in the near future about grief you are good is also made possible with support from knack factory k-n-a-c-k factory a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in portland maine and nashville tennessee though they do work throughout these here united states if you need that sort of work done get in touch with the fine folks at knack factory We make playlists that accompany each of our episodes. You can find the playlist in the show notes. You can find links that are relevant to the conversation in the show notes. I think that's all you need to know. Oh, since this is a Carolyn Kendrick-hosted episode, uh, Carolyn is a musician. She has an EP called Tear Things Apart. She also has a record called The Music of You Are Good Volume 1, which is a bunch of songs that have appeared in previous episodes that are performed by Carolyn check that out. We'll link that in the show notes as well. So this episode's about 9 to 5. 9 to 5, of course, is a 1980 American comedy film. It stars Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton as three working women who live out their fantasies of getting even with and overthrowing the company's autocratic sexist egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot boss played by Dabney Coleman. We recorded an episode on this. It was... uh, Carolyn was our guest and it was Sarah, Carolyn, and me. Uh, It was significant to both Sarah and me because we saw 9 to 5 together at the Belcourt Theatre in Nashville, Tennessee a handful of years ago. It was a very special time for us and so we all wanted to do an episode and then... You know, we recorded the episode with the three of us. And at the end, I was like, you know, that was a good chat, But I feel like you should do this episode with three women. <laughs> <laughs> and so they recorded a whole new episode featuring our great friend, Issa Burke, who is a fantastic and fabulous musician who you'll hear a little bit more about. I What I like about the show is we do it until we feel like we get it right. And this is one of those episodes where we're like, how do we make this... More right. So anyway, this is that conversation with Sarah, Carolyn and Issa. I hope that you enjoy it. Also, thanks so much for being here, everybody. You should follow us on Instagram. You should follow us on Twitter at you are good pod. You can find us again on uh, Patreon where you'll get bonus episodes and people chat about the episodes in there. You can find us on Discord. Haven't talked about Discord in a minute. You can find us on Discord where there's conversations about episodes and all sorts of other things. That is linked in the show notes, and that's all you need to know from me. All right, everybody, enjoy this episode about 9 to 5. You are good. Thanks for being here.
1: Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Carolyn Kendrick. Oh, yay. And hello, Issa Burke.
2: Hello, Carolyn Kendrick and Sarah Marshall. What a day. I know. Sarah, what are we up to today? We're talking about nine to five. And I'm like having the feeling that I think I remember having when my mom showed up at my school. I'm like, Carolyn's on the show. <laughs> like when I was four, by the way. Yes. Like when it's the when you're like, mom. School? <laughs> Both now?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: amazing. And Issa, we've had you on the show before. Super fun. Yeah, you were on the Parent Trap episode, which is a beloved episode.
3: Oh, I'm glad to hear.
2: Sarah, what is Nine to Five about? I'm so happy you asked. Okay, Nine to Five is a 1980 film starring Lily Tomlin as Violet Newstead, Jane Fonda as Judy Burnley, and Dolly Parton. As Dora Lee Rhodes, I want to say. Rhodes. That's what it is. Right. Because it's a great country musician last name because her nickname could be Dusty Rhodes if she ever needs to do that. (laughs) Oh, yes. Good God. (laughs) Or lonesome or underfunded. So we open with this amazing montage set to Dolly Parton's theme song for the movie 9 to 5 with all of these women commuting to work on foot, on bike, like women we never see again, having a coffee realizing that they're late. Mm -hmm. And then we see that Judy is starting her first ever day of work because she and her husband just got divorced and she has a new apartment by the airport. Speaking of lonesome. (laughs) (laughs) So Judy is showing up for her first ever day at work and she is going to be trained by Violet Lily Tomlin, who, and she's underneath a complete idiot named Franklin Hart, played by the wonderful Dabney Coleman, who... I think her line is, I've never seen anybody leapfrog so fast and I have the bad back to prove it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Ugh>. Brutal. <laughs> Says so much. And a nine to five. One of the lines is, it's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. And you'll spend your, your life putting money in his yeah. wallet. Mm-hmm. A job is, it's sold to you as something where you work really hard and you advance mm-hmm. and your station reflects your merit. But really like, What this movie is telling us is that if you're a woman, even one who's relatively quite privileged in many ways, you will still probably get stuck under Dabney Coleman forever because he will get promoted over you, even though you're the one who trained him. And even though you're much better in every respect than him, because he's a man Mm -hmm. and he's what management is supposed to look like. It's called management. (laughs) It's not called womanagement. So Violet is pissed about having to train Judy because it reflects the fact that this is the role that she's stuck in. Mm -hmm. But she does it. We also then meet Dora Lee, who is Mr. Hart's personal secretary and who is, of course, played by Dolly Parton, which means that all the women in the office hate her because she's hot and they think that she's having an affair with her boss and women we stay down by hating each other. So that's one of the things that's happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lily Tomlin doesn't, but everyone else seems to. And then we also have, is her name Margaret? Lily Tomlin's pal in the office who is, according to Mr. Hart, the old lush.
3: Oh, yeah. There's Margaret, the old lush. Yeah. And then there's Roz.
2: Yes, Roz is very important. Tell us about Roz.
3: She also reports directly to Mr. Hart and she's kind of like the office narc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's got like a very severe bangs (laughs) situation happening. (laughs) The gray bob. Like a gray
2: Cleopatra. Yes, yes, yes. It's kind of chic, actually. Yeah. She's putting in effort.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. But I think I get the sense that in the movie, the hairstyle is meant to communicate like this is an uptight and repressed woman. Mm -hmm. And so Roz is kind of like if Mr. Hart says jump, she says how high and she is not interested in any of the subordination or sassy behavior that our trio of heroines may be engaging in.
2: Yes. Roz has many important roles to play. And so we, we set up our characters. Mr. Hart has a meeting with Judy, which is just like a wonderfully incoherent speech about like being a team player. I love when he's like, you
3: girls never got the chance to play sports, (laughs) but I feel that that's the best place to learn
2: about teamwork. (laughs) And you know what? Like none of the men in this world suspect him of being an idiot because he has a nice vest on, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that menswear is maybe so important and was so dominant for so long because like you just it's hard to look stupid in a three piece suit, honestly.
3: But Hart Mm -hmm. sure is stupid. He sure is. As unpleasant as he is. As a person, he's delightful to watch as a character. Like, Dabney Coleman is having the absolute time of his life.
2: He's like a variation of this character in Tootsie two years later, which is really funny to me. Like, I feel like the people who made Tootsie were like, this guy is like that guy from nine to five. And then they're like, what if we just got that guy from nine to (laughs) (laughs) five? That was working. We should just keep
1: that up. Yeah. Sarah, something that you said recently to me was reflecting on how dangerous stupid men are and Mm -hmm. how, in particular, this character is dangerous because he's stupid. Mm -hmm. And I have been thinking about how much that has informed the entirety of our whole culture. Like, Mm. the whole American landscape is just us dealing with the repercussions of dangerous, stupid men.
2: Yes. And it's also, like, the thing where insecurity is such a big part of it where it's like you can't directly tell someone they're doing a bad job you have to trick them into like dropping the school bus that they're holding in their claw or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we introduce Mr. Hart um we really get a sense of of what flavor he's embodying of management and then Mr. Hart sends Violet off to buy a silk scarf for his wife and she's like Mr. Hart I really don't think it's appropriate for me to do that and he's like what did I just say about being a team player, basically? Mm -hmm. So he's just got a little fiefdom. Mm -hmm. Every worker (laughs) under him is a woman. It's just a world of women. And then Mr. Hart on top, telling everyone what to do. And the women kind of policing each other to different extents based on that. So they get the scarf. Mm -hmm. And then we see Mr. Hart turn around and give it to Dora Lee, who we learn he has been relentlessly sexually harassing for like quite a while, it seems like. And she's Well, this reminds me of a story I heard yesterday I was listening to. You must remember this on the episode about Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney working as teen players for MGM. And there's a story about I forget his name, but like some kind of studio boss who was basically in charge of Judy Garland's entire life. He would always be like, Judy, you sing from the heart. And then he would put his hand on her heart and also on her left breast. Okay, no. And he did it for years. And then finally, when she was like, don't ever do that again, he like. Cried and was like, I'm so hurt by that. And then she had to comfort him. Ugh. Ugh. And I feel like that's just like where Dorley <laughs> also mm. is. Yeah. I mean, there's a line I always think of where. She's like, oh, Mr. Hart, don't worry. Next time you invite me to a convention in San Francisco, I just have to make sure there's actually a convention. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, That line and the other one that really stuck with me was
3: when she, she's like, oh, don't worry. I've been chased by swifter men than you and I ain't been caught yet. So good. Dolly! Yeah, I mean that's like a brilliant line, and this was Dolly Parton's first film role. Yeah, right. She's an amazing actress.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. She's a natural. But
3: that vibe, the way that she has to just sort of be like, "Oh, yep, yeah, well, you know, you're fine. It's just my job to keep outrunning these men who are pursuing me like bloodhounds every hour of the day."
1: Yeah, very bleak. But I, I also like in that line. That she is able to convey to the audience and then also to him like, yeah, you're trying, but you're also so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) You are dumb, dumb, dummy, dumb, dumb, dumb. (laughs) But also like kind of the only not terrible man in this whole movie is her husband. Mm -hmm. But who is also kind of not great because she's looking for comfort and then he kind of placates her with like oh why don't you smile honey or whatever which is not great but yeah i remember watching this movie the first few times and being like oh yeah her husband's kind of nice and then upon further reflection and more watching i'm like i wouldn't want somebody to say that to me if i was upset it was also for this
2: time that i was like oh it's not you know he's it's not perfect yeah like he's got a lot in his favor but In my head, I really conflate him with Dolly Parton's, you know, famously never glimpsed husband, Carl Dean. (laughs) Right. He's like, smile. And then he's like, I'll give you a warm welcome. And I'm like, oh, this is the kind of guy who'd give you like a certificate for loving on your birthday or something. (laughs) (laughs) So back to Doralee getting sexually harassed. Basically, yeah, we're seeing, you know, day one thousand of this for her, essentially. And Mr. Hart gives her the scarf that Violet just bought, thinking it was for his wife. And then who should show up but Mr. Hart's wife, who's like, having seen this several times now, it's it's weirdly maybe my favorite character because she's just Mm -hmm. I've never seen energy like this before. She's fascinating.
3: (laughs) One of my biggest questions about this movie is like, what does she know
2: yeah, because, like, I, she could know
3: everything. She could know nothing. She's a cipher. We have no real way to know. Carolyn, what do you think? I
1: can't imagine that she really knows what's going on, because if you were to really know the intentions behind F Hart, unless she knows everything and then she's just like, I'm just going to keep playing along so I can get all of these awesome vacations out of this, because <laughs> he keeps sending her on these like beautiful vacations and she gets a ton Mm. of stuff yeah but we are also led to believe that the wife is his meal ticket Mm -hmm. the wife actually makes money so i can't imagine that she knows much like she must obviously just really be psyched about this relationship but another theory is that she is obviously attracted to dora lee so
2: (gasps) I love this theory. Oh, yes.
1: She might not know anything, Mm -hmm. but sparks were flying from those eyes, I will say. You're absolutely right.
2: Because she comes in, it's like right after Doralee and her husband have toppled because he's chasing her around. She's trying to fend him off. And so it's this moment where she could be suspicious of something. And then Doralee's telling her about the scarf and she's like, yes, your husband bought it for me. And she's like, it's lovely. And you are so attractive. I know. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> well, that's the <laughs>
1: ultimate power move, I feel. That's true, too. I really appreciate that energy because she's kind of the first woman who's nice to Dora Lee. Yeah. And she's the first woman that's kind of exemplifying the behavior that we come to appreciate throughout the movie, even though we're kind of led to believe that she's coming at it from maybe a uninformed background. But yeah. And then the other thing that I really appreciate about that scene is that Doralee is just honest in the worst version of myself. If that were happening to me, my first impulse would be to like lie or something or maybe not lie, but like I would feel uncomfortable just being like, yeah, your husband got me this scarf because I wouldn't want. Yeah. I just wouldn't want to be in in that. But I appreciate that she just told the truth and that honesty is almost always the best answer. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I feel like in that exchange, they're sort of hinting at like one of the bigger themes of the movie, which is obviously female solidarity. Mm. The reason that these women are ultimately somewhat successful, even if their plans go somewhat awry, is that they are sort of overcoming all of the forces that are trying to pit them against each other like we were kind of talking about that earlier with doralee where like all the women in the office hate her because she's super hot and they think that she's sleeping with the boss even though she isn't and even if she were that's not necessarily like i actually love when lily tomlin thinks that doralee is sleeping with the boss she's like she says something like, ah, eh, live and let live.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, you wouldn't even expect to hear that now. Yeah. You know, like, she is basically saying, like, we don't know what's going on in their marriage. Let's just let them be. Right. And, of course, no one else in the office is having that reaction. They're all, like, ostracizing her and making her sit alone in the lunchroom, which just absolutely broke my heart.
1: Yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. Lily Tomlin also says, like, oh, I would credit her with more brains than him, though, which is great. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah totally. I mean, Lily Tomlin in this movie is so goddamn cool. Oh, yeah.
2: Eternally. Like, she cannot be described, really. But, like, we should try, though. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. She
3: leads with such a competence in everything that she does. And she's just, like, so put together, the smartest person in the room. But she has this also kind of, like... There's this, like, wacky quality to her that's, like, right underneath the surface that I think makes it so delightful to watch her Mm -hmm. like when you see her like fixing the garage door and then her son is like I'm going to roll you a joint and then she's like hey (laughs) why don't I go get stoned with my work friends Yep, I just I want to hang out and smoke a joint with Lily Tomlin Mm
2: -hmm. that's actually what a cool mom is you like have it together in the ways that you need to and then Mm -hmm. you're like I'm going to smoke a joint with my friends Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that my son rolled for me after I talked to him about moderation. And after I fixed the garage door by myself. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like Lily Tomlin at this point in her career, I think she's like maybe in her early 40s when this movie comes out is like, I don't know. I am like really winging it here, but I'm going to guess that maybe if you were like an opera diva, like you would be kind of hitting your peak around this age as well, because like you've put in your years, you know, Mm -hmm. exactly how to use your instrument. And like, there aren't really physical impediments to you using it at this point and I feel like Mm -hmm. she's been in comedy for so long that like I cannot express how funny she is like the I always think of like the line read where Roz has given her a new regulation about like keeping clutter (laughs) off of desks and she's like thank you Roz I know just where to stick it (laughs) oh it's so good or I tore right through it (laughs) I was
3: noticing there are a lot of really good like throwaway jokes in this movie like there's mm-hmm. a lot of jokes that just kind of fly by and the movie doesn't make too big a meal out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the recurring bit with the chair falling over like right and yeah. hitting his head on the floor which triggers the sort of insane sequence of events that follow and watching that this time I just thought that was so genius that the first couple times it happens you're like oh god his chair haha and then that ends up being the thing that triggers it's a well executed
1: joke. Yeah, absolutely. And Sarah, we should I want you to tell us about the next plethora of plot that is about to happen, because this is a very <laughs> plot heavy movie. A lot happens.
2: It really is. Yeah. These gals get up to like many capers. So. All right. So we have the scene with Dora Lee and Mr. Hart. His wife comes. Everything seems to be fine. Dora Lee is trying to befriend Judy, but Judy, who is newly single because her husband, had an affair and who believes that Doralee is having an affair with the boss and her husband also had an affair with the secretary, I think, mm-hmm. is having none of it. She is also having a lousy afternoon because she is trying to make photocopies and the machine overpowers her, basically. Like, she just can't control the chaos, which is a wonderful human versus technology scene for the ages, I think. And Mr. Hart comes in and yells at her. And there's also a really lovely scene of, like, Judy, like... Again, it's like the level of talent here is incredible because I feel like Lily Tomlin has been working in comedy for so long. And Jane Fonda is a fucking movie star. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just the way she's able to convey almost crying and not actually crying is so. Just so heartbreaking.
1: I I really do actually cry whenever I see that because it's her first day ever of work and she's just been going through the ringer. Yeah. And then this. Dumbass comes and yells at her for something that I'm sure he can't do.
2: Of course. Of course. I mean, my God, he would be dead if he tried to make photocopies in there. (laughs) So that's lousy. And then does anything crappy happen to Violet that day? I feel like it has to. Well, then that's when we find out that she's trying to get this promotion, but then
1: she doesn't get it. Yes, of course. Right. She
3: takes a sec to get it out of him that the reason that someone else has gotten this promotion is because the clients prefer
2: to work with men. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they've all had a day of getting stomped on by the boot of capitalism. Then we have also a representation of something I felt many times in my life where, oh, my God, we made it through the first day, how incredible. And then boom, it's the second day. And Jane Fond is clocking in and being like, I feel like I was just here mm-hmm. to her coworker, who I think is the only significant character who's a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who gets fired pretty early on and who is kind of our example of like, this is why part-time jobs need to be available. Because like if she could work part-time, then she could also do childcare. Mm-hmm. And she's fired for discussing her salary. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of topicality here. And then Dora Lee finds
1: out that Frank has been telling everybody in the office that they're sleeping together. Right. Which leads all of them to leave work early and go to what I presume to be the best bar in America called Charlie's. Yes. Charlie's looks awesome.
2: Charlie's is where movements are born. For sure. (laughs) So they all end up at Charlie's and decide to go back to Dora Lee's house, eat her food and smoke Violet's joint Mm -hmm. and this is also the reason why we're talking about this movie on this date because I realized recently I was like oh my god 420 falls on a Wednesday this year and Wednesday is when we put shows out what shall we do and you won't believe this possibly because it's not true because I don't know whether to believe (laughs) the story or not but there's a story in a book about the Reagans and the movies they watched while they were in the White House Allegedly, Ronald and Nancy Reagan watched nine to five together, and they felt that an otherwise wonderful movie was ruined by a scene where all of the women smoke pot. And this inspired Nancy Reagan to launch the war on drugs, which, again, I don't think is true. But I think they think that's true. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I
1: mean, the Reagans are infamous; like they have to have some quote unquote bona fide reason to start a, a war on drugs they can't just yeah. say what it's actually about
2: they yeah, can't like, just be like we're white supremacists yes. right because yeah. they're yes it's because of nine to five <laughs> blame lily tomlin i also love the implication that like
3: you know all the stuff about workers rights and equal pay they were
2: fine with that who loves workers ronnie reagan <laughs> exactly. the idea is that like if you smoke pot you will be inspired to start either a union or an actual violent workplace takeover. So... (laughs) can't smoke
1: pot well this is why we need to continue to teach critical thinking in schools because this is another example of a stupid man being dangerous Ronald Reagan oh my (laughs) god
2: God, that's true right oh my god the Reagans were sitting there they were like I guess we love this Mr. Hart character but these women are awful (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) and that Roz she has a really likable quality she's got a good head on her shoulders she's just trying to be efficient
1: (laughs) So they're at the bar
2: and then they're at Dora Lee's and they're eating ribs. Dolly Parton's husband is at a singing gig, which I love. And then what happens, Sarah? And then they share their fantasies about getting revenge on Mr. Hart. And so (laughs) Judy has kind of a cowgirl fantasy, which is appropriate because Jane Fonda was Cat Baloo. Dora Lee has a fantasy of essentially sexually harassing Mr. Hart herself, which is, I think, the moment when you when I realize anyway, what a great actor Dabney Coleman is in this because like his ability to play like girlish discomfort. And then Violet has a fantasy that's like towing the line before Disney copyright infringement of poisoning the coffee. I forgot to mention this. Mr. Hart is always asking to bring him coffee coffee is I think the single most politicized food in the world your relationship to coffee and your boss will tell you everything you need to know about your job Mm -hmm. so like it's not Violet's job to bring him coffee but whenever Dorley is out running another ridiculous errand for him she has to do it so her fantasy is that one of the times he asks her for coffee she will pour rat poison because he's always asking for skinny and sweet which is our world's nutrasweet or whatever and that He will die, and then the three princesses will be celebrated by all of the peasants who they have freed from the dungeon of the typing pool. Mm. It's very cute.
3: The way that this movie just suddenly takes a hard left into, like, stoner fantasy (laughs) is, like, so delightful to me. And in Jane Fonda's sequence, there's, like, bloodhounds, and, like, the whole office has, like, torches. The way that there's, like no hint of any of this prior to this moment. I really love yeah. mm-hmm. you think you're watching a very straightforward, like office screwball comedy. That's very much set in the real world. And then you have these like three increasingly insane fantasy sequences Mm -hmm. it's so fun to watch and it's so surprising yeah
1: and they're so long too like if this movie was made in the last 20 years like I bet like a third of this movie would have been cut and the dream sequences would have been the first to go because you don't really need them but they are very indicative of the time and then also indicative of how strongly these women feel even though I bet today we don't feel like some of their actions would be quite as justified
3: yeah (laughs) yeah I feel like the sort of um Dolly Parton sequence of like what if I did sexual harassment to him is like that maybe doesn't Mm -hmm. age quite as well in terms of it being like the other two are pure fantasy pure comedy but that one feels a little bit like Uh, you're kind of just making me feel bad for him. Right, (laughs) yeah. yeah.
2: That's his most sympathetic moment. They could have
3: gone further with the whole, like, her riding in on a horse and lassoing him part. Could
2: have been more lassoing. Only note for the film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then, Sarah, I've also heard you talk about the gun situation.
2: (laughs) Right, I was just thinking of that. Yeah, so there's this throwaway story, because we need to explain why Doralee has a gun, or just bring up that she's got a gun around. And she tells a story about... She and her girlfriend were leaving a rodeo and they were in the parking lot and these two guys were harassing them. And so she was decided, I'm going to I'm going to be tough because I have a gun. And then she shot a hole through her purse. And that's like the punchline. And it's funny. And then you're like, oh, but then like, oh, what happened? Right. There are a lot of scary stories that actually do get told. But like the truth is hiding in plain sight because they're getting passed off as funny stories right. mm-hmm. and like that's just how Thelma and Louise get started basically mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. you're in a parking lot you've got a gun a guy won't leave you alone and there's a country and western atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah oh well, we got both kinds we got country and western <laughs> so they have the fantasy sequence and then the next day is a big old day from hell and one of the unfortunate things in this universe is that skinny and sweet comes in a bright yellow package and rat poison comes in a bright yellow package, and they're both boxes the exact same color, shape, and size. So that's just a bad idea. And you would think that, I guess maybe this is one benefit of everything now being owned by the same five conglomerates is that they're going to have more internal communication about their packaging. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's good. But Violet, having just fantasized about poisoning Mr. Hart and having said to a coworker that one of these days she's going to snap truly by accident gives Mr. Hart coffee laced with rat poison. He does his classic thing of leaning back in his chair and he falls over and knocks himself out before he even has a chance to drink the coffee, but because he spills it when he falls and because of the way it's found, Violet believes pretty reasonably that she's accidentally killed him. And so she tells the girls what's going on. They go to the hospital. Mr. Hart feels fine and basically like walks out and is like don't examine me leave me alone because of course he does because he loves to make bad choices <laughs> and because of that violet and judy and dorley believe the room that they have found which is being guarded by the police who are protecting or trying to protect a mafia witness who has just been killed by apparent poisoning they think this is mr hart's room that they're hearing about so violet's like oh fuck We killed Mr. Hart and they're going to autopsy him and they're going to find the poison. So obviously we have to steal the corpse. (laughs) And so she steals a corpse. I mean, she just straight up steals a corpse out of a hospital. She has to have a conversation with a candy striper, which is a really interesting moment where the candy striper is like, oh, you're a doctor. And she's like, yes, I am a doctor why am I talking to you? <laughs> and then she says something like piss off. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they successfully abscond with the body. They realize it's not Mr. Hart and they take it back. They have to take it back to the hospital and in the process get pulled over by a police officer. And again, Lily Tomlin avoids him opening the trunk and finding the corpse because he's pulled them over because one of their tail lights is out. By pretending to be a lady doctor, Mm -hmm. she has to get to the hospital on a big emergency, which is a really interesting moment that I hope theses have been written on. (laughs) So they get back to the hospital, they successfully return the body. We see, I think, two janitorial staff, hospital cleaners, who find the body in the bathroom and are just like, okay, another body in a bathroom, whatever. Oh my gosh.
1: There's another stiff in the John. Yeah.
3: (laughs) There's
2: another <laughs> stiff in the john. So next day at work, they discuss everything in the bathroom. They resolve to go to Charlie's. And they're like, phew, that panned out okay, amazingly. Well, I'm glad that's over. And then who is hiding in the bathroom, taking notes on a toilet seat liner? But Roz! Mm-hmm. Roz snitches to Mr. Hart. Mr. Hart first brings in Dora to threaten and Dora responds by hog-tying him, mm-hmm. which I guess she used to compete in rodeo, yeah. mm-hmm. but I like that it's believable for her character that she just knows how to hogtie a full-grown man. Absolutely. I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and so Mr. Hart's wife, crucially, is on a cruise, which we set up when she first came to the office, that she wants to go and get six weeks of sunshine. <laughs> we have yeah. also ascertained that Mr. Hart is doing something corrupt with a warehouse and stolen goods or something. And once we can get proof of that, we can successfully oust him and he won't be able to hold this attempted murder over our heads, I guess, is the reasoning. So basically, we have to kill time and keep him locked in his room in a straitjacket type Deal that we make out of bondage gear. <laughs> I don't think we explicitly say that, but like they, it's a it's a bondage setup, right? Well, they do explicitly say that later. Oh, they do. They okay. do. And
1: then also they hook him up to a a garage opener, which we know that uh, Violet knows how to do because she was doing it earlier in the right movie. I love yeah.
2: that. Yeah, there's so much setup and payoff. And so basically, in the ultimate act of femme revenge, she is forced to stay home, not work. And watch soap operas. Mm -hmm. And then basically the rest of the movie is them successfully keeping this operation under wraps. They send Roz off to do accelerated French, which I think makes sense for her. Mm -hmm. I think uptight women love to speak French.
3: Oh, yeah. She's already got the haircut. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And in the workplace, basically this movie is based on the thesis which I am excited to discuss that like, if only we put women in charge for six weeks, everything would be great, (laughs) which we have since found to be not entirely true. But the reasons for that are interesting. Mm -hmm. And so they bring back workplace clutter. Crucially, (laughs) people are allowed to have plants. Mm -hmm. They have people set their own hours. They can do part time work. We have, I think a lot of orange ends up in the design scheme, Mm -hmm. like they redecorate, they really get it and incredible and outdone. They're setting up a daycare. I mean, they essentially change the things about the workplace that were making it dystopian. Because I think the concept here is that work itself is not the enemy. Like, people want to work. This is mm-hmm. a very relevant topic. Like, people like working. It's the ways that they are forced to work yeah, absolutely. that make the difference a lot of the time and the ways that they are demeaned for needing to do the thing that we also believe is the only thing that makes them valuable as humans, paradoxically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they have completely changed the workplace. They have also start a workplace funded rehab program mm-hmm. where they send Margaret, who comes back all spiffy and sober So Mr. Hart finally breaks out and he shows up to confront the girls and bring them down. I like to call them the girls because that's just sort of my term for like women that are friends kind of from Sex and the City. But also he demeaningly calls them girls. So it's kind of inappropriate for this movie. He comes to confront the women (laughs) and... (laughs) the competent adult women. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And who should be there but the chairman who no one has ever seen pretty much played by sterling hayden a legend who shows up and is like i'm the top dog of all the manly dogs of them all and i think these women are doing (laughs) fine work oh a daycare we had daycares in world war ii reagan (laughs) (laughs) yeah and basically he's like great job and he's like mr hart franklin Frank, you've done such great work that I'm going to promote you and move you down to Brazil so that you can deforest Brazil and you can be Brazil's problem, Mm -hmm. which is a really dystopian Solution when you think about it yes. Absolutely
3: well and especially like the chairman Has such a like OG colonizer vibe Oh my gosh yes absolutely Like the white
1: suit He's got Colonel Mustard vibes
3: kind of Big Yes. Time. Big, I was thinking Colonel Sanders <laughs> Oh yes any of the colonels really <laughs> Yeah And so he gets sent down to Brazil Which is a nightmare for him And a dream come true for everyone else Except for the people
1: of Brazil <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
3: Like, crucially, all of these reforms are basically attributed to Hart. Right. Because Dora Lee was forging his signature on all of Mm -hmm. these memos when they put Mm -hmm. these things in place. So even though the women do essentially get everything they want and, like... Violet does receive some credit. It's only by pretending everything was Hart's idea that any of this gets to be implemented.
1: Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And then also the main thing that would go a very long way they still don't get equal pay (laughs) right
2: oh my yeah tell us about that line
1: yeah so basically colonel sanders is like talking about how everything is great in this new workplace he loves all of frank hart's ideas love the daycare love the working part-time love all of it except for that equal pay thing like that's a good incentive (laughs) to like dangle in front of people but we're not going to actually give it to them we still don't have equal pay like i think it's interesting that they acknowledge that you can make as many reforms as you want but when it really comes to to brass tacks you're just not going to get it and then also one thing that I forgot to mention earlier was that the other person of color we have in this movie the very, very opening sequence is a mailman, like a black mailman, who, mm. when Jane Fonda is hired, he's like, he doesn't say this, but essentially, how am how am I going to ever be
2: promoted if you just keep hiring other white women from outside of the corporation? And then that character vanishes off the face of the earth and we never see him again. Sayonara. So many movies
3: of this time, they sort of like make vague nods to the existence of people of color. And then they're like... Anyway, back to the plot,
2: right. back to the protagonists. It feels like there's still a very pervasive idea that like movies about a group of white women where like men aren't particularly important, don't make money. And then there's like this cycle where Hollywood acts really startled when they do make money mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then they forget that that happened and they actually surprise the next time. I mean, that really contributes, I imagine, to this crabs in a bucket thing. I don't know. And this feels like almost like just how things were going back in like the suffragist days where there was this false belief of like, we'll get white women the vote and then other women can get the vote. And like, I don't think that's how that works, though. The rights will trickle down. Yeah, right. right. Back to Reagan. Yeah.
1: Maybe this would be a good opportunity to talk about the wonderfully radical things about this movie and then also the ways that we've grown since its release and the ways that we need to do a little bit more interrogation.
2: Which I would hope we had since 1980. Like, what a bummer if we were if we were to look at this and be like, this is great. No, notes." Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I hope in another 40 years, whatever things that we believe Mm -hmm. now we've grown on from. But yeah, sorry, you were saying something along the lines of. The premise of this movie is what if women were in charge, Mm -hmm. then everything would magically be great. And what is there to that? Is there anything to it or do we need to do some more interrogation?
3: I'm skeptical of any narrative that is like overly essentializing based on gender that like women Mm -hmm. are inherently good and men are inherently bad. And if Mm -hmm. women were in charge, then everything would be nurturing and loving and there'd be free daycare and everyone would feel happy and nice all the time. Like Mm -hmm. the very existence of Margaret Thatcher, like (laughs) disproves Mm -hmm. that theory. But I think there is something to the idea that take the example of childcare. Like when you have a society in which women have historically been responsible for the bulk of the childcare The average working woman might be a little more informed than the average working man about the needs of working parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially if you have working mothers at your company, maybe ask them what they need in order to do a good job at their job and take care of their children. They show a shot of the memo that puts the daycare center in place. Mm -hmm. And I think it says something about, like, based on studies
2: of productivity (laughs) in Europe, Europe. Yeah. Ever heard of it? You know, Europe where they do socialism. <laughs> well, the point you're making is making me think of something that I think is a really important distinction that has become maybe more obscure over the years, which is if women want childcare in the workplace or if they want more accessible childcare, Yes, that could be because they're altruistic and they're thinking about their community and they're thinking about like the needs of other women, or it could just be because they need childcare. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. right. So this thing of like put women in charge, they'll fix things. And it's like, sometimes in some ways that kind of thing happens, but it could also just be because like you need people in management who understand all the needs of the different kinds of people who they are managing. And so if you have forever in management, people who never think about childcare, then like just no one is ever going to prioritize childcare.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Roz is a perfect example of she is a woman that is technically in charge in the office in in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's not so much that we need to put women in charge. It's that we need to be putting people who are actively dissociating from patriarchy. And then also Mm. on top of that, dissociating from the racism that comes with patriarchy. Mm. And yeah, if we need people who are more representative of our general populace and our general workplaces, which I would hope we are going towards being more inclusive in every possible way. You need diversity in every way in management, not just Lily Tomlin, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One thing I'd love to talk about is Dolly Parton as an idolized figure. Yes. Mm.
2: Just say everything you think about that. That's what I want.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I love Dolly Parton and I recently went to Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge which is where Dollywood is I didn't actually go to Dollywood but I've been thinking about her a lot lately because of that trip and then also because I recently listened to Dolly Parton's America which was a Radio Lab
3: spinoff so good
1: mm-hmm. and also just because I I love Dolly Parton and I love her songs I've always been like a huge fan and she's actively been fighting against the like dumb blonde trope in a kind of mm-hmm. light-hearted way for her entire career And doing a pretty good job, I'd say. And in general, she has a ton of leftist goodwill and she has a ton of conservative goodwill. And she's like generally beloved by everybody in America for the most part. I can't really Mm -hmm. think of anybody except for maybe hyper-religious people. Yeah.
2: But they just hate everything.
1: Right, exactly. They just hate fun. But her overall, like, idolization has been making me nervous lately because yeah, I just can't see a way that that goes well for anyone, including her. Like, she's incredible, but she, at the end of the day, is just some lady and she's going to make mistakes. And sh- I'm sure she's made plenty of mistakes in the past. And we, as a people, are kind of always looking for angelic like figures that we can be like oh but she's perfect she'll never do anything wrong and then when she does Mm -hmm. we love smashing the pedestal and then Mm -hmm. wiping away everything that has been good that that person has done so that's just something I've been thinking about lately as you know I don't want to say like cancel culture because also like obviously no such thing as cancel culture but it is interesting the way that we build people up Mm -hmm. and then tear them down or like are waiting for them to be torn torn down or Mm -hmm. I don't know what do you guys think
3: yeah I mean (laughs) this is like such a massive can of worms and I don't know if I am emotionally prepared or caffeinated (laughs) enough to get into a debate about the existence
2: of cancel culture sure let's just say that it both is and isn't real Yes, yes, yes I think like the conservative invention of cancel culture is like Obviously fake, obviously in bad faith, Mm -hmm. like they've taken that idea and run with it into a swamp and then run out of the swamp and into a Walmart and like, yeah.
3: (laughs) And they're dripping swamp all over the Walmart. Yes. Yes.
2: And it's like, okay, great. This is great for everyone that you're doing this. (laughs) But then also like it's the dynamics of fame and how fame always has been. I feel like, is knit up into, you know, what we mean when we use this phrase? Because it's just there's so many things under this tent now and especially fame as it works for women, because I think there's an idea that like, you know, at least in terms of kind of 19th, 20th century America, which is what I know best, 21st century, where women deserve to be in the spotlight only very, very conditionally. And it's very telling that like some of the most Mm -hmm. well-known, iconic women of the last hundred years we met either... Because they had recently died or became iconic because they were already famous and then they died. We don't do that with men. We really don't. We have a real fondness for like hot, dead, tragic women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think there's just this idea that like if you're a woman who people are paying attention to, it is very, very conditional and you are always running the risk of losing all of it. And that could happen for any reason. It could it could happen because you get slightly less hot, according to John Q. Driveway, <laughs> or it could happen because, you know, you do X, Y or Z. It doesn't matter. I think the point is showing you that, like, you don't intrinsically deserve to be listened to or looked at. Yeah. Dolly Parton pretty much has been steadily gaining goodwill throughout her entire
1: career. But Jane Fonda maybe is actually a better example of America's response when you do have political beliefs or when you do change your mind about your political beliefs or as you change and develop as a person. Because even by the time of this movie, Jane Fonda had been through many iterations of fame and then also being beloved or not beloved by different parts of the country. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. And being hated by parts of the country. And I'm sure that, like, quite a number of people who would have benefited from seeing this movie refused to see it because it starred Hanoi Jane. Right. Right.
3: I know for a while, my primary association with Jane Fonda was, like, the workout videos. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. First time I ever saw her.
3: That became the narrative around Jane Fonda. And I didn't know for a while that she was both, like, a very good actress and, like, a serious activist who'd done some serious activist shit.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: In a way, the dumb blonde narrative sort of applies to Jane Fonda, too. That, like, it was easy Mm. to think of her as, like... What do you mean she's, like, doing serious things? Like, she's just attractive lady from the workout videos. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, like, to this day, like, she's been doing some really serious, like, climate activism. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to say for sure that I 100% agree with everything she's ever done, because I don't have that mm-hmm.
2: information. Well, and also because that's not... It's weird that we feel that requirement about famous people now, yeah. you know? Yeah. I was just about to say, like, here I
3: am trying to, like, preclude the... John Q. Driveway from going into my Twitter mentions like, exactly. did yeah. you know that Jane Fonda blah blah did
1: blah. Did you know like, that
2: Jane Fonda scratched a car when she was parallel parking in 1977 <laughs> right. and didn't leave a note? Yeah, exactly. How dare you?
1: That's the thing. There's just so much bad faith in online conversation these days like I think I actually maybe hit my wall with Twitter this week because that's exciting yeah I think it finally happened and you'll never believe what it was that got me to this place it's so stupid like there's been a gazillion other way worse conversations that I have but Alex actually tweeted something about how it's nice that we have deer in our neighborhood because then we get to see deer Oh
2: my God, where is this going?
1: No, No, I already hate it. I couldn't believe it. And it's just like, I couldn't think of a single way to distort that into like Twitter brain. But you needn't. Someone will. (laughs) And there were so many replies of people being like, Dear have covid they have lyme disease you're gonna hit them with your car (laughs) what the deer are dangerous just hysteria they probably weren't really feeling that way but how it was coming off is like Mm -hmm. here's a nice thing that is being treated about and then everybody else is like listing every single bad thing that a deer could possibly represent to somebody else Mm -hmm. and that's really what it feels like having any opinion about anything on mm-hmm. the internet where yeah. it's like, okay, I liked this thing that Jane Fonda did once. And then there's immediately a thousand people saying like, oh, well, did you know that she once spit on a ladybug? Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Or you'll be like, how did your parents meet? And inevitably you'll start getting replies that are like, I never knew my parents. And it's like, well, you could have just <laughs> not responded to the tweet. Like, it's not like it was in a census. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. I know. It's like, like, not everything has to be Exactly for you, maybe, yeah. You know, but then again, like the internet is for everybody. But you know, I was thinking about this with Jane Fonda because there was that famous Oscars where she signed her acceptance speech because they weren't including closed captioning for the deaf community, mm-hmm. and so some videos of that were recirculating after this Oscars. But yeah, like I could easily easily see somebody with Twitter brain like taking that in a direction
2: that is hard to come back from, like. You know what I mean? Yeah. The deer thing is such a great example because like I'm like fully back on Twitter now and I feel like that's not ideal for me and I'll need to dip out again at some point, but not at this minute. So that's good. or It it is what it is. But I was raised to have this mindset where like I need to constantly have this Terminator brain where I'm like constantly sweeping. I'm constantly doing an ocular pat down Mm. of any situation Of, like, how could this possibly go wrong for me? Like, how could every innocuous Mm -hmm. move Mm -hmm. that I make somehow blow up in my face just because of my first relationships? Like, the way I relate to people, unfortunately, now is like every single thing I do, no matter how reasonable it is, or no matter how much I'm following the cues in front of me, like, how could this be the thing that you disproportionately lose your mind about? And How can I like ruin my own quality of life trying to anticipate that? And the thing about being on Twitter is that you actually have to do that. And it's very hard (laughs) to actively train yourself to not be in that mindset, which is very harmful to you and like kind of ruins your ability to trust anyone you love if the need to do it is being reinforced by the fact that you can't mention liking having deer in the neighborhood without people right having a lot of opinions about how terrible and dangerous and it just like deer or deer they're just kind of everywhere you know you just I mean yeah it does suck to have a deer run into your car but like whatever I don't know like you're you can't really avoid it it's just gonna happen right? <laughs> right <laughs> or like you can't
3: say that you like some of the things Jane Fonda has done without being assumed that what you actually mean is Jane Fonda has never done anything wrong ever right
1: Yeah. And I guess bringing that back to the Dolly Parton thing, like, I think that inevitably we will collectively have some kind of outrage about something that Dolly Parton has done. Oh, yeah. And then I fear that that will erase, you know, all of the incredible things that she has done. And I don't know, maybe if she does something that's like absolutely reprehensible, then maybe it's justified. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't know.
3: It's so difficult for many people to like somehow grasp the idea that like people can do good things and also do bad things right. and neither negates the other.
1: I think that that connects to the fact that I don't, I don't really think people believe that you can be more than one thing. I think people believe that you're either good or bad mm-hmm. and you either do mm-hmm. good things or you do bad things. And I don't think there's any such thing as being a good person. And I don't really think there's yeah. such thing as being a bad person. I think that we just try to do as many good things as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually we're going to screw up and then hopefully we will be able to fix the things that we have messed up and hopefully be able to make amends in whatever way we can.
2: Definitely. Yeah. And I think that like the answer probably is just to not put people on pedestals to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know, and like and if Dolly Parton does something that I disagree with or find reprehensible tomorrow, then I feel like I'll be like, well, I never expected you to be perfect because I know you're like. person like I'm a person and the best things that I do or have done are not canceled out by the worst things that I do or the worst things about me and like yeah and I think there's a fundamental discomfort with that information, because we want to just feel like we can achieve goodness and just like be there. But it's like it shouldn't be surprising because it's the same as everything else. Like I would love it if you could just wash your hair really, really well, like once a week and then not worry about Mm -hmm. it (laughs) (laughs) or once a month, honestly. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you just do a great job and then you're like, great. Monthly hair cleaning over. And I'm a good person. (laughs) You have to keep washing your hair, you have to keep making good choices every day. And like, yeah, that's intimidating. But it's also really great because it means that like, you know, I think there's a John Updike quote that you're born and die every day. You're a different person every day. And like, that's great. I love that. Mm.
3: When we were talking earlier about the way we're all kind of on the internet trying to like, get ahead of what we imagine other people's bad faith interpretations Mm -hmm. of what we say could be
2: bad deer
3: takes (laughs) (laughs) to bring it back to nine to five. One of the things that I think is kind of impressive about this movie is it's sort of like, okay, well, what if women did just want to take violent revenge on men? You know, it's sort of like (laughs) unconcerned with like bad faith interpretations of feminism, which have been rampant for many decades and are still rampant today. In a lot of ways, I'm like amazed that this movie even got made. I mean, I think part of how it got made is that it's just like, so over the top and so obviously absurd it is very easy for me to imagine some like male film execs that's like we can't possibly put out a movie in which a secretary threatens her boss with a gun right totally. <laughs> i think that there is something kind of brave in that that it's sort of takes like the feminist boogeyman Mm. what women actually want is to tie Mm. you up and imprison you in your home and take over the company it's like
2: yeah okay what if that happens yeah (laughs) and it's like well what if they did would that be so bad right look at how it worked out
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know this movie came out in 1980 Came out during the Reagan Mm -hmm. years, became famous during the Reagan years, but was made in 1979. So it was made pre-Reagan. So we are still in, what is it, Carter?
2: Yeah, Jimmy Carter's America.
1: So we're still in Jimmy Carter's America when this is made.
2: Well, I would love to do my Jimmy Carter impression, which is, my name is Jimmy Carter. I'll be your president if you'll have me. Oh!
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I have a soft spot for Jimmy Carter because
1: he's a peanut farmer and my family. I come from peanut farmers as well. Oh,
2: I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's it is it's such a weird shift because I do think that, look, I wasn't there. But I think that the thing about the Carter administration is that we tended for a long time I think partly through, you know, conservative propaganda to associate it with a time of, you know, national disunity and confusion. And, you know, we're having a hostage crisis. We're Mm -hmm. having a spike in gas prices. My mom remembers it as the time when she had to like line up at five in the morning to get gas. Mm -hmm. You know, not all the time, but like that you're dealing with a scarcity. And that's something that is stressful for Americans because we are promised that like as long as we bear every abuse that is thrown at us, we can at least get whatever we want if we can afford it. Mm. So when that goes out the window, it's very upsetting. And yet this idea that there was order under Reagan and confusion and malaise under Carter, a word, by the way, that he didn't say in that famous malaise speech. Right. (laughs) I feel like that's an idea that Reagan came up with. (laughs) Sure. And just, you know, that Carter had ideas for the country that I think did fit with this kind of utopian vision of the workplace with child care and this idea of like we had child care in World War II. Mm-hmm. It's not a new idea. Mm-hmm. It's good mm-hmm. for everyone. If we give people resources, things will get better for them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even the transformation of Reagan as an individual over the course of his life, I think kind of. Like you can look at America becoming more conservative by degrees in the way that it has, but like you can see that in individual lives. And Reagan started off Mm -hmm. as a New Deal Democrat when he was a young man Mm -hmm. and then over the years became what he became. The um, family values bought (laughs) 9000. We can Mm -hmm. see this moment of shift in America where it does feel so incongruous that this movie came out during the Reagan administration and in a way, like, we we don't really see anything like it that embodies this concept of revenge and had such mainstream success and became such a moment with such real stars in it until Thelma and Louise, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. like, yeah. not a comedy, no, famously. No.
1: <laughs> a lot of the policies that they enact in the office in 9 to 5 seem still pretty radical today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as Americans, we're kind of always, like, asking for the bare minimum and I think that's kind of where the concept of unionization kind of comes back because Mm. when you have unions then you have you know maybe you're not going to get everything and obviously like we're still stuck in America and it's terrible but I feel like collectivization gives you the opportunity to be like right okay so like in 40 years what opportunities do we want our children to be getting and like, how can we start chipping away at that now?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that kind of made me think about some of the work that you're doing, Isa, with you, Ma, mm-hmm. which maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I've been kind of delinquent from for for a bunch of months, but for a while I was doing some stuff with this organization called the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, which is, like, it's really difficult to, like, form an actual union in the music industry because, like, everyone is an independent contractor, Mm -hmm. so... The legal status in terms of like what it's actually capable of is confusing and I don't really even fully understand it myself, but it's basically an organization that is just attempting to, in various ways, like improve working conditions in the music industry and get musicians and people who work for venues and people who work for record labels and all other parts of the music industry together and... I think there is, like, this sense in the music industry that I think is true in so many other industries that, like, everyone is fighting over the same $20. Mm
2: -hmm. Also true in in literature. Yeah, I would say. Yes, yes,
3: yes. Yeah, it's like the musicians aren't getting paid enough. And the people who work at the venues aren't getting paid enough. And the booking agents and managers aren't always getting paid enough. And the people who work at the record labels aren't getting paid enough. But the people who own the record labels are having a great time.
1: Yeah. And the people who own the conglomerations that own all of the venues, they're making bank.
3: Right. And the people who are buying the concert tickets are like, well, my job doesn't pay me enough. So I can't afford $30 every time Mm -hmm. I want to go to a concert. Mm -hmm. It's hard to examine any of this stuff too closely without just getting to, oh, the problem is capitalism.
1: But it is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's no easy, easy solution. But if we eventually find enough puzzle pieces, you know, yeah, it kind of is like a puzzle because you know what the picture looks like on the box, but you don't Mm. necessarily know how all of it's going to come together. So maybe if we just keep trying to Mm. find puzzle pieces to put together, eventually we'll have a... Bigger picture. Right.
3: It can't only be top down. A lot of it has to be bottom up. Mm -hmm. You reform your own workplace, you reform your own city, and hopefully that will sort of spread to other places. There is something kind of radical in Nine to Five in that sense that it's about like, what can we change at our own company? Mm -hmm. You know, no one in this movie is talking about bringing down capitalism, (laughs) but they are talking about like, Okay, what can we do for the, you know, the 40 or so women who work on this floor of this company? And then that eventually does make waves all the way up to Colonel Mustard
2: Sanders, the chairman of the board. <laughs> First name Mustard, last name Sanders. Never had friends as a child. It's also, this reminds me that Working Girl also ends, has the same kind of device as 9 to 5, which is also the same device as in uh, Tartuffe, where (laughs) the king of the company comes at the end and is like, what a great job these women have (laughs) done. Mm -hmm. And you, the person who's been ruining everything, you're bad. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, I mistakenly think you're doing a great job and I'm going to reward you by doing something you'll hate. (laughs) You know, it makes sense that this is the fantasy that the just ruler will come in and understand the situation and fix it and hopefully we all know that that is not a thing yeah yeah. bosses exist to be kidnapped (laughs) (laughs) bosses exist to be hogtied that's why the phrase boss hog exists (laughs) (laughs) all right i can't think of any dads in this movie Violet had a husband, but he died, and now she has to take care of her kids, and that's why she's working this terrible job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a lot of dads running around. So where are the daddies? Who's the daddy?
3: I feel that Violet herself, Mm -hmm. the ways in which she is just taking care of everything, she has a daddy energy that I feel uh, sort of held Mm -hmm. by in this film. Mm. And for better or for worse... Colonel Colonizer Mustard Sanders (laughs) (laughs) absolutely sweeps in and doms Mr. Hart. So those are my submissions.
1: I am going to say not a character, but I am going to say the friendship that then developed between Jane Fonda and Mm -hmm. Lily Tomlin, which pursues to this day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love Any kind of friendship that is long and spans decades and those are really, really important and I'm just really glad that they are still long-term friends and they still do creative stuff together and yeah, I'm going to quote this statistic that I don't even know if it's true or not, so maybe this is unwise, but Mm -hmm. even if it's not factually true, it's emotionally true. (laughs) So men's life expectancy goes up with the amount of women that are in their life, so if they have daughters... (laughs) Or if they have wives that will take care of them in their old age or if they get sick, like that means that generally that they will tend to live a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But that's not true of women. Like if you have a um, man in your life, like that's like if you have a husband or if you have sons, like your life expectancy isn't going to go up.
2: Yeah, because you're making them sandwiches. <laughs> I know you're like- <laughs>
1: I know. But what is true is that your life expectancy as a woman goes up the amount of close female friendships that you have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And i probably as well, like if you have queer relationships, I'm sure that that's true as well.
2: Yeah, I believe that. And I mean, I I feel like that comes down to like, I don't know, this much larger conversation about like who is taught to care, basically. And I feel yeah. like the ongoing problem in a lot of relationships, if you have a relationship with a A woman in it and a man in it, like chances are, at least in America at this moment, I'm not like this, by the way, I'm like a shitty guy. But most women (laughs) that I know grew up being taught to clean and to notice things Mm -hmm. and to just kind of like Mm -hmm. clean as they go and notice what has to happen and be project managers in the household. And men are not typically raised to be like that in America today and I Mm -hmm. there's nothing I don't think there's anything about gender to it inherently I think it's just or you know there's nothing about biological sex there's something about gender as it is taught yeah right not only are women taught to care about the home like we're taught to care about you know, people Mm -hmm. like the whole argument that like, Oh, women are better. They're nicer. It's like, no, we're not. Some of us suck. Some of us are serial killers, but like (laughs) if you're raised to think about your community and to bring other people soup, then like you're going to be more likely to do that when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. That's just how it goes. Yeah,
3: totally. While it may be true that getting more women in leadership roles will be better for the community. That's not because of anything inherent, Right. right? It's because of the way that people are taught. And if we taught more men, Mm. to, like, take care of their own goddamn children, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then there would be more people in the workforce who have an understanding of the varied needs of people.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's
1: correlation. It's not causation.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, Yeah, Sarah, who's your daddy? I have to say that my daddy is Lily Tomlin Mm -hmm. because I think, empirically, I think that, like, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Jane Fonda are all at the top of their game in this movie. Like, they've Mm -hmm. all kind of, like reached the point where it seems like they have more control over their careers and what they're doing like they're in this I would say you can't really argue that it's not an overtly feminist movie Mm -hmm. so you can feel that power kind of like radiating off of all of them in sheets Mm -hmm. but also just I don't know I think that Lily Tomlin is probably the performer who I admire the most because I most feel like I'm like studying her moves and thinking Mm -hmm. about how to be funny. And that's what I want to, you know, keep getting better at. And just like she's like an Olympic athlete at the top of her game in terms of just like her relation to just every funny thing that she says or does. And also I wanted to mention because we didn't even get to bring it up. There's just we've been talking for so long. There's so much good stuff in this movie we haven't even had the chance to talk about. But. The part where we just establish her on the phone being like, Violet Newstead, oh, please yeah. hold. Violet mm-hmm. Newstead, please hold. And then like talking to her kids, you know, and just be like, no, I don't want to talk to the dog. Okay, yeah. bye. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs>
0: All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you, of course, to Issa Burke for joining us. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, of course, for producing this episode, for co-hosting this episode. Thank you to Sarah Marshall for co-hosting all the episodes. We are grateful to you all for just being here and doing this whole thing with us thank you to fresh lesh for producing the beats that make our transitions sound so great uh thank you for listening find us on twitter and instagram if you're not already doing that at you are good pod find us on uh, discord again linked in the show notes you can find our episode inspired playlist also linked in the show notes you can find bonus episodes on patreon at patreon.com slash you are good you my friend are good. Thank you so much for being here with us and for making this whole thing possible. We appreciate you. Take care, everybody.